Welcome back to the Alexander Schmidt Podcast. This is episode 011, Commentary on Homer's Iliad, Book 2. In Plato's Ion, a dialogue by the most famous of the 4th century philosophers, student of Socrates, and uh, teacher and master to Aristotle, who would later be teacher and master <clears throat> to Alexander the Great, and was said even to have been so beloved by Alexander that when Alexander would come across some new species on campaign, he would send said species back to Aristotle, the great biologist, for him to study. A wonderful thing for a student to do for a teacher. And so in Plato's Ion, there is a young rhapsode, a singer, who has just come back from a festival at which he has just won and is so inflated with himself that he makes a very bold claim to Socrates, the, the gadfly of Athens, great philosopher and inquisitor that he was. And he says that he knows Homer better than all men because he had just won a competition on recitation of Homer. And so recitation, what does that mean? That means that from memory he could sing the songs of Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey, better than any other. However, Socrates put the question to him, do you really know Homer? And goes about in his Socratic way, with his Socratic irony, with his Socratic inquisition, showing his wisdom by not telling his opponent what he knows or does not know, but by revealing it to him through his questions which is the way of all masters, of course. The deepest body of water is that which receives the most water from the streams that flow into it. And so by the end of the dialogue, Socrates shows that though this young foolish Ion does know the story of the Iliad and the Odyssey, that, well, it looks as if he knows nothing truly about it at all. And so... Wishing that to be the harbor from which we venture, and not which bogs us down, let's set sail today by considering the major symbols of Book 2 in Homer's Iliad. The first we'll consider is the theme that goes on throughout the entirety of the, of the book, which is the proper use of speech, and why speech freely used must be used in a way that orders individuals because it has the best possible outcome, especially in a military um, situation, which perhaps all situations are to some extent insofar as they are if ethical situations requiring proper behavior in order to prevent conflict from springing out. Of course, there are police who exist even within peaceful society to demonstrate this fact. The second symbol that we'll consider is that of Agamemnon's scepter and what it is exactly that a scepter is and means and what it signifies. We will also address sort of a common and misbegotten postmodern claim about the structure of society and where the notion actually comes from, where we can, we can actually discover that in this text. And so we'll do that. And then the third symbol we'll talk about will be that of the sparrow versus the snake, or the aerial creature, the bird versus the serpent, and what they mean and why they will often come into conflict in the Iliad. And perhaps when we understand what the symbol is, we will understand that it represents something of the natural conflict of life. And so, well, let's dive in. So let's look up at the examples of speaking in Book 2. 
we have two speakers who fail to communicate in the way that they wish to. And we have two speakers that are extremely successful. The two speakers who fail are Agamemnon, who gives his speech, where he tries to use reverse psychology and shows his lack of understanding both of his abilities as a speaker and of um, what will effectively motivate his troops to fight for him in a unitive sort of goal. <clears throat> the other failure is Thersites of the Endless Speech, who works to incite the men against Agamemnon and, effect and to effectively disunite them. He's a rabble-rouser. And what does a rabble-rouser do? A rabble-rouser takes a united body of people whose behaviors are modified in order to work together to achieve a goal. In this instance, it would be the tribes of Achaeans working together to defeat the Trojans. <clears throat> and he effectively disunites the people through looking at the errors that have been made by the representation of the ideal, that would be the leader, the king, Agamemnon, or Achilleus in this case, the two representations of the two major ideals of the Achaeans, strength in Achilleus and battle prowess, and in Agamemnon, the ability to pull together a united political force that will be stronger than another united political force, which would be the Trojans. <clears throat> so essentially we see both the leader of the Achaeans and the man who's most critical of him work to achieve the exact same end, which is to disunite the Achaeans. And so what do we see there? We see that the appropriate use of speech is not to disunite people and to rouse the rabble, which is effectively to make individuals forget their collective or the goal which unites them as a body of people and makes them remember their selfish individual aims, which makes them scatter as a people or question the very reason why they're there fighting in the first place. And so let's look at the more effective speakers, Odysseus and Nestor. So on the one hand, we see Nestor first deny Agamemnon his good advice because of Agamemnon's actions towards Achilleus from book one. Because Agamemnon had publicly shamed Achilleus for doing the right thing, calling an assembly, and for speaking the truth to him, Nestor, in an act of perhaps personal prudence, refuses to tell Agamemnon exactly what it is that he thinks when Agamemnon bases his battle strategy off of a dream which he had. And though Nestor does cleverly word what he says to Agamemnon, he says, were anybody else to tell me this, Agamemnon, I would call him a liar. But since you're king, well, I guess we'll do what you say. If Agamemnon were aware in any possible way, he would understand what his best advisor had just said to him. Well, let's look then later. We then see Nestor, after Odysseus effectively speaks, rank order the men so that the cowards will be in the middle of the ranks, effectively making it so that they can neither run away um, uh, because there are men behind them, and since they're going to run into the ranks of the Trojans earlier than the men behind them, they'll be forced to fight. And so they'll have no choice in the matter. So what does Nestor use his wisdom appropriately to do? <clears throat> to order men correctly, and we've also seen him do that in book one as well, where he straight up said to Achilleus, who is strongest of the Achaeans, that Agamemnon is greater than he because he orders more men, showing the changing heroic ideal, transitioning from the, from the Heraclean, Herculean, uh, brutish strength, which Achilleus still represents, to more the Agamemnon use of 
political maneuvering. And we're even seeing that begin to transition into the more Nestorian and Odyssean ability <clears throat> to use language to correctly order men. And so when we look at Odysseus's speech, he shows that correct speech or free speech properly used is not undiscerning. Because when he addresses the men who are flocking away from the assembly after Agamemnon gives his very, very poor pump-up speech, he addresses the leaders differently from how he addresses the, the enlisted men. Why? Well, because that's how he has to address them. He has to call the leaders back to their duty and have them remember who it is that they report to Agamemnon while reminding those who are enlisted to listen to their leaders in the first place. So he reminds everybody of their command structures. Those of you who are commoners, you better go follow your leaders. Those of you who are leaders, you better remember who it is that you're following too. And in so doing, the men return to order. After that, he further orders them by empathizing with them and telling them, hey, 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 let's remember the context. This war won't go on forever. We all know that this war is about to end. And since it's about to end, let's activate our incentive reward structures and remember what happens at the end of a war that we win. At the end of a war that we win, we get the things, the spoils, the plunder from Troy. And then we get to take it home. And then when we go home, we're not just nobodies who bring no bacon home after exploring the unknown. No, 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 no. We come back as heroes. And so... He reminds the men of the ideal towards which they're all striving and therefore unites them together through his speech. And that's why he takes a scepter to Thersites and why Thersites hates him. Because Thersites, though also an eloquent speaker, speaks to no use because he wishes to raise up the emotions of man and thus to disunite the rational intellects that have conjoined together in order to model the same ideal, which is to act like heroes together in the service of defeating Troy so that they can all together embody the same role, which is going out into the unknown, defeating the dragon, and bringing back the treasure, which every man on the victory side, commoner or noble, can embody. And so the next question that one might ask is, what does the staff or the scepter represent? So we recall that there was a scepter in book one that Achilles took and smashed, which represent him smashing the claims of authority that Agamemnon would have over him. And then we see that Odysseus takes a scepter and walks about hitting commoners with it and speaking to, to the officers with it. And we see also that Agamemnon, while speaking, holds the scepter. And so... We also get a small genealogy of his scepter. So let's, let's look at this genealogy and then let's consider what a scepter or a staff means exactly in general. So looking at book two, line 108 or so to 118. This is the Lombardo translation again. Up stood Lord Agamemnon holding a staff. Hephaestus had carved this staff, and Hephaestus had given it to Cronian Zeus. <clears throat> Zeus, in turn, gave it to Quicksilver Hermes, and Hermes to Pelops, the charioteer. Pelops handed it on to Atreus, and when Atreus died, he left it to Thiestes. Thiestes left it for Agamemnon to bear and rule over the islands and all of Argos, 
Leaning on it now, he addressed the Greeks. And so now, unless you were specifically trained in classics or mythology, you might not see exactly what it is that's being said in that transition uh, or in that genealogy of the staff. The first thing you might recognize is that it, it is a staff of the most value it can possibly have because Hephaestus makes it. And Hephaestus is the God who makes the greatest of all things. And to whom did he first offer the staff? He offered it to Zeus. Zeus, the mightiest of all gods, receives the best of all things. And therefore, the staff is a mark of the relationship between he who invents and that which he gives to the king, which is the representation of societies. King is given society to maintain and to hold and to order, and therefore the staff represents that. The staff then enters the human world through Hermes, he who transitions items from the gods to the mortals or from the mortals to the dead. And so Hermes gives the staff to Pelops, from which we get the Peloponnesian Peninsula. Pelops is, of course, the father of Atreus. Atreus, who then receives the staff, gives it not to his son Agamemnon, as you would expect, but to Thyestes. Why to Thyestes? Well, Thyestes is the father of Aegisthus. Aegisthus will be the man who, in conjunction with Clytemestra, the wife of Agamemnon, will, after the Trojan War, murder Agamemnon. And so how is it that Thyestes, the father of Aegisthus, comes into possession of the staff of a king? Well, the reason must be this. Thyestes kills Atreus, his brother, and takes the staff. And it's only after Agamemnon and Menelaus find themselves married to Clytemestra and to Helen that they receive the forces necessary from Tyndareus to come back and to attack and defeat Thyestes and to take back Argos and what's theirs. And therefore Agamemnon, taking back his land from the murder of his father, becomes king of Argos. And Menelaus, after the abdication or death of Tyndareus, takes his place as king of Sparta and is lord over Helen there until, of course, Paris comes to take her from him. And so this staff has showed sort of, you might say, the crooked relationship between the gods and man. It represents that a king is the representation of God or the symbol of order on earth, that thing which not only is at the top of the dominance hierarchy or the order or society, but also preserves the order of society, generally with words, which is why Agamemnon is not as good as he could be. The second thing is that it shows that all that is ideal in heaven is often flawed on earth, and that even though the idea is that man represents God or the, maintain the maintainer of order in society on earth, well, man is flawed, and so, well, man often makes mistakes. And so the next question one might ask about a staff is that a sort of postmodern claim made about staff is that it's a symbol simply of brutish authority like a club, and that the man who has the club is a representation of sort of a father figure with a phallic instrument indicating his power or potency that he uses to oppress those beneath him. Wrong. That's simply wrong. And though one might say that's a prejudice, I would say simply back that the truth is always prejudiced against an error. And so, well, that, there goes that concept. Here's the issue. What is a staff? A staff is a representation of a tree. What is a tree? A place where humans spent the vast majority of their existences 
as primates. Well, how do we know that? Well, the tree is a symbol of climbing a hierarchy. How? Well, a tree is the same as a ladder, is the same as a totem pole, it's the same as a staff. What does it represent? A thing with a bottom and a top. What's the, uh, are the bottom and the top connected on a tree, on a totem pole, on a ladder, on a, on, in a skyscraper? Yes, absolutely. So, it's a representation of the entirety of society with often some sort of figure at the top of it indicating awareness or God or the highest ability of man. So if you look on the back of, say, a dollar bill, you see um, a, a pyramid on the top of the pyramid, but disconnected from it, you see an eye. What is that eye? That eye is the capacity to go up the tree, you might say, the awareness of what a society is and the capacity to maintain the society. What maintains a society? Awareness. How does one express awareness? Through free speech, through the logos. And so you might well say, who is it that wields the staff best, Agamemnon or Odysseus? Well, clearly, if we look at book two, Odysseus. Odysseus is more effective in every task than Agamemnon. Agamemnon has failed multiple times already in book one and book two to do his job adequately. In book one, he created conflict with Odysseus. <laughs> or excuse me, with Achilleus. Major mistake on his part will lead to the first loss the Achaeans have had in ten years. Ever, as far as they're concerned. Second issue. He manages to estrange Nestor from him. His best and wisest counselor at the beginning of book two. Error three, he fails to understand the psychology and motivations of his men and effectively scatters them. He, though represented by the staff and on the staff, does not wield the staff greatest because he does not have the ability which the staff fully embodies, which is the ability which Odysseus has. Because though Agamemnon is represented by the head of the staff as king, he is not that which can maintain the staff or society or the hierarchy represented by both a totem pole, which is made of wood, a tree, or even a high-rise or a skyscraper in our society. Those on the top are those in the penthouse. That's Agamemnon. But those are not necessarily the ones who maintain the dominance hierarchy or the order of society best. The person who does that it's the person who's aware, and the person who's aware shows their awareness through their ordered speech. Their ordered speech is shown to be effective by its effect on others. What is Odysseus' effect on others? Well, he shows his awareness, which is indicated by his relationship with Athena, who comes to talk to him, by ordering the men and then motivating the men to work in a unitive way. What does he do? He restores order. What does he therefore embody? the ability to restore order to a society. What does a staff therefore represent? The connection between all people with a unitary goal, generally within a society, here within a military unit. And what does, what is the optimal ability necessary to maintain that order? Awareness and the proper use of speech. So let's move on to the third symbolic image. The sparrows, the nine of them, with their mother, and the snake, which eats them all. Well, the disparity between a bird and a snake is very famous and ancient symbol. And in fact, it's a very modern symbol, too, because, of course, in America, there are eagles represented as the image of America. And even in Mexico, just south, there's an eagle clutching a snake within its claws. 
obviously a very ancient symbol. So what does, what does say, a sparrow represent in contrast to a snake? Well, a sparrow, where does it live? It's an aerial creature in the air. What's the air? The air is that which is immaterial, that which is around and connects all people, and that which you cannot touch, but which allows light through. The air represents that which is spirit or breath, the principle of life through which light or consciousness shines. What is a snake? Well, snake represents matter. How? Well, where do snakes come from? They slither across the ground, the dark, the soily. Where do they come out from? They apparently come out from Earth, Mother Earth. Earth is considered mother because it is that from which all is born, because all things seem to bloom out from it or to come out from it and to also derive sustenance from it. In the same way that, say, a child comes out from its mother and then derives sustenance from the mother's milk and love. And so a snake slithers across the ground and represents the ground and the material and that which is dark and soily, whereas a bird represents that which is spiritual and moves throughout the air and is not necessarily composed with material. And therefore, so if a human were to be something with a consciousness, and a consciousness is something sort of airy, but it's mixed with a body, and a body is sort of made out of matter, well, then a human would be some sort of mixture of both spirit and matter. And if we recall back to our first lectures that Zeus represents order in society, order in society are material or immaterial, they're immaterial because it's based on principle and law. So a human is part Zeus. And then we recall that Hera represents what? Well, like Mary represents mother nature. And so what is a human? A mixture of mother nature and that which is immaterial, and society, culture, and nature. And so, in this instance, however, what is it that the snake represents in eating the sparrows? Well, in eating the sparrows, it's eating years, correct? Well, it represents the same thing here that the crocodile in Peter Pan represents. It is nature in conjunction with time. What does that mean? Well, what does the snake eat? It eats the sparrows, the sparrows represent years. It's consuming the time of all people there. It's sort of like the Ouroboros. The Ouroboros is a snake that is in a circle eating its own tail. And that shows sort of how nature is always one, but it's always consuming itself because it's always creating that which is and eating it. There's also an image that you can often see with Kali where she is, say, bearing a man, but also eating him at the same time as a statue. And so, how does this particular snake, which is eating sparrows, relate to the crocodile in Peter Pan? Well, the crocodile in Peter Pan, what does he have in his stomach, besides Hook's hand? Well, he also has a clock. Well, then what does the crocodile represent? Because it's already eaten Captain Hook's hand. It represents how nature will, over time, take a piece of you and eventually take all of you. And that's why... Captain Hook is so afraid of the crocodile and why Peter Pan is so afraid of becoming Captain Hook because Peter Pan fears becoming an adult because an adult will eventually die and Captain Hook fears the crocodile because the crocodile is nature and contains his own death. So both of them fail to recognize their basic human nature and that's why they have to live in Never Never Land and therefore serve as symbols for people that never take their responsibility in a nation that allows for great freedom. And so, as far as I can tell, that's therefore 
what the symbol of the snake consuming the sparrows means. All right, this has been commentary on book two by Alexander Schmidt on the Alexander, on the Alexander Schmidt podcast. I look forward to getting more lectures out soon. The next episode should be on book three, and then perhaps I'll provide additional commentary on that as well if you like this. Please do share, like, call in to the station. I'm continuing to loving do this, or excuse me, I'm continuing to love doing this. And please do keep listening. Have a wonderful day.